0: All right, we're gonna start our review for those who've been here. You should have this all memorized by now. So what do you remember the highlights for chapter one were? Jesus is the word of life from the beginning of creation. Just remember, that's the same thing that he started the gospel out with and he started out this letter in 1 John the same way. Um, Jesus brought the way to have fellowship with God resulting in what gift? Eternal life. And the apostles were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' physical resurrection. And the believers are to have, believers have sin, but they are to avoid sin. That was the reality that we had at the end of chapter one. Chapter two, it was the big word we learned in chapter two that Jesus is our propitiation. So a person cannot love the things of the world and God at the same time. Antichrist denied Jesus is the Christ, the truth leading to eternal life is found in Christ, which leads us to love others and practice righteousness versus the lie, which denies Christ's deity and practices sin. So be prepared to deal with the false teaching and false teachers in the church. This was early on, this was already going on. It's continued all of these years later. So the only way you can identify the faults is by studying the true. And that's what we're here to do, is to study the true. We then talked about the five tenets that were the highlights for the Gnostic teaching. Do you remember the five tenets? Right, knowledge versus character or virtue, that there were special people, they had the hierarchy and they could figure out what was true and it was difficult for us. Um, that God could not be the only creator, right? Because he couldn't create the world because sin was in the world. That deity could not exist in flesh and therefore they denied the resurrection. Those were the basic tenets. And we went back over chapter one and two and we applied each one of those tenets where we saw, saw it come up in chapter one and two. Then as we moved on and went through three and four, when we saw that, we applied those tenets at that point. So chapter three, what were the highlights you remember? Believers are called children of God. We will be resurrected as Jesus was resurrected when he comes back for us. The part of the believer that becomes purified like Jesus is in the spirit, right? One receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation when you are born again. This allows a believer to practice the righteousness and love the brethren. Jesus came to destroy the works of the the devil and believers are to love one another and demonstrate this action of sacrifice even to death as Jesus did. Jesus is the standard. John tells us Jesus is the standard. He doesn't want us to compare ourselves to each other. Jesus is always the standard. Chapter four, what were the highlights you remember from that? That would just be last week. Should be right there, fresh on your minds. (laughs) The believers are to do what? They were to test the spirit in someone to identify false teachers. The test was, Those who confess Jesus in the flesh, that was from God, and they have the Holy Spirit. Those who do not confess this have the spirit of Antichrist. So those with the Holy Spirit will love the brethren sacrificially. That was my sum up for all that we did last week in chapter 4. It's a good thing I'm not gonna have to sum up chapter five because it would be a whole long paragraph. (laughs) Let's get into chapter five. We're gonna start with the first five verses. So we're in 1 John chapter five. We're gonna do verses one through five. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, so in verse one, what declarative statement does John continue with? He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. So how is Jesus described there in that verse? He's called the Christ. So we take a moment on that because we're used to just saying Jesus Christ, but Christ had a very specific meaning to the early church and to Jews in particular. This is a very specific name used in declaring the coming Messiah of the Jews. So Jesus declared himself to be the Christ in John chapter four, verses 25 and 26. So we're going to the book of John, looking at chapter four, verses 25 and 26. This is when Christ is talking to the woman at the mel- at the at the well, so the Samaritan woman. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When this one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's telling her I'm the Christ that everyone's looking for, that's who I am. The disciples declared Jesus to be the Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 17, or through 17. So Matthew 16, 15 through 17. I'm I'm not doing the whole long stories or we would never get done. But this is is what we're gonna hear that Christ says in starting in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say I am? He's having a conversation with the apostles and they've just been having a conversation about who the people said that John the Baptist could be. And so now he's moved the conversation to himself. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Rezona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So the apostles understood that he was the promised Christ. And in the early church, this was the focus of the gospel, especially to the Jews because they were waiting for their Messiah. They were waiting for their Christ to come. We find that in Acts chapter nine, verse 22. So Acts 9, 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Also later in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was, was the Christ. So, you know, I don't know, we have that understanding in that perspective about what him being called the Christ actually meant, but it it had a very specific meaning, especially in the early church. So this Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and is referred to as the Christ. Everything they needed to know was already provided in the scriptures. That's why Paul could go back in the what we call the Old Testament, he could go back and he could say, this is how we know this was supposed to happen, Jesus fulfilled that. He's the promised one, he's the Christ. He's the real deal. We don't need to keep looking, he's come. So back now to 1 John, chapter five, verse one, those who believe that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah or the Christ were what? Born of God. So this person is a believer. What else demonstrates the heart of a believer? Whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. So who is the child born of him? Jesus. So believers accept the truth about who the Messiah is. The believer will love the Father and the Son born to him. Verse 2. What is John's next statement? He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So, what specifically are the believers to do? Love God and obey his commandments. When a person loves God and obeys his commandments, what is true? By this, we know that, right, we love the children of God. So they're connected. So believers can know they love the brethren when they love God and observe the the commandments. So the example of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself will take care of this. Verse three, how does John define love? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So I'm just going to go back to the Old Testament for a verse in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 22. So 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, "'Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings "'and sacrifices?' As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed them, heed than the fat of rams. Obeying the commandments meant more than bringing a bunch of sacrifices to the temple. Same is true today. Heeding the word of the commandments is how you demonstrate that you have love of God and that's done through sacrificing for others, but obeying the commandments are the way that you please God more than what you put in the offering plate or what you, right? Obeying the commands is the most important. So the connection between Love for God and obedience is to demonstrate this is not a feeling of love, but true love demonstrated in action. When a believer loves God, he willingly desires to obey his commandments. This is a demonstration to God of the love one has for God. To the unbeliever, God's commandments are unnatural and difficult. Even the requirement to love the brethren is a burden. Remember, they don't speak the language. They don't get it. It's all difficult. So in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 4, why can a believer love and obey God? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So the first verse gave us, for whatever is born of God, the verse does not begin with Whoever. So you have to read to the end of the verse to find the object. What is the whatever referring to? To our faith. That's the whatever that's being talked about. So our faith is what needs to be born of God. That faith then does what? It overcomes the world. How is the faith described? This is the victory that has overcome the world. So what is the object of this faith that has overcome the world? It's a little tricky here, so I'll give you a minute. What is the object of this faith that has overcome the world? You have to go close. <laughs> go all the way back to verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is, is the Christ. It it goes all the way back to that connection. That's the victory. That's who overcomes. The how is the faith. The who is the one that has this belief that was given to us back in verse one. In verse five, John clarifies the overcomer how. Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So the overcomer believes Jesus is the Christ and is the son of God. He has to, it seems like he's having to repeat a lot of these things to make something clear that's been going on. So now we'll do 1 John chapter five and we'll do verses six through 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of the men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Wow. (laughs) We got to spend a little time unpacking what that means because we've got some water and blood and spirit. So we're going to go back, starting in verse six. What does John clarify about this Jesus? He's the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. So who is the one referring to? That's when you can say Jesus back there. (laughs) John says Jesus came by what? Water and blood. How and when did Jesus come by water at the baptism of John. That's when Jesus was declared. That's when the Holy Spirit descended. And that's when the father testified that would be the born of water in acts. We learn that whoever the new apostle selected had to be with Jesus from the time of his baptism to his resurrection so we find that in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. So Acts 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what important event occurred for Jesus at the time of his baptism? So we're going to find that in Acts chapter 10. we're going to do verses 36 through 38. So Acts 10: 36 through 38. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That was 10, 36 through 38. John also testifies to this event in the gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 32. So gospel, John 1, 32. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. The baptism by water is understood to be the time of baptism by John the Baptist where the spirit came and remained with Jesus. What would be the baptism of blood? In case your mind is not swimming enough over in the water, now we're gonna talk about the baptism of blood. What do you think that is? The crucifixion. But I wanna find where the words are more specific, where the reference to the crucifixion is called a baptism. So the first place I would take you is in Romans chapter six, verses four. So Romans six, four. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You notice it says there, we have been buried with him through the baptism into death. Jesus referred to his death as a baptism as well. This one you can find in Mark chapter 10, verses 38 through 39. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, these are the two disciples that have asked for a special favor from Jesus. We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. This was all forward. So he can't be talking about how he was baptized by John. He's got to be looking at a forward baptism and that's the baptism of blood he will carry at the crucifixion. The baptism of blood was accomplished through that crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to two specific apostles here, to James and John. James was the first apostle to die as a martyr. You see that in Acts 12, 1 through two, which I did not put in the notes. I just did the scripture reference. John was the last apostle to die. So he got the bookends. The first one and the last one are the two that he's talking to. And he said, you will indeed go through the baptism that I am gonna go through. It, wasn't, it doesn't have to be the same on a cross, right? It doesn't have to be that exact, but they were martyred, and we don't even really know uh, how John, not John the Baptist, this is John the Apostle writer, came to his death. There's tradition, and there's other things, but there's no confirmation. But we know, based on when he wrote the last book, which was Revelation, that he was the last of the apostles to die. I'm sorry, this is so hard, ladies. This is tough stuff. This chapter is really tough stuff. All right, so back now to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. John continues, how? He says, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. John says that it is this Jesus, the Christ, who experienced blood, both the baptism of water when the Holy Spirit came upon him all the way through the crucifixion when the Holy Spirit was still with him. The baptism of the Spirit at water baptism and the baptism of blood at the crucifixion are authenticated facts bearing witness to the truth of an incarnate Christ. The Holy Spirit didn't leave him when he was there. Who does John say testifies to this truth? It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. It is very helpful to understand this was a refutation to a false teaching that John is contending with in his day. Some false teaching at the time said that the Christ descended upon Jesus at baptism but left him at the crucifixion. For that teaching, you would be identifying the Christ as the Holy Spirit and not the man, Jesus. So John counters by saying it is the Holy Spirit that testifies to the truth that the Christ is Jesus. That's some significant false teaching that was in John's day that he's contending with and why he's using words that make us go, why is that so difficult for us to piece that together? So water and blood become the evidence that John is using to describe an incarnate Jesus and the words deity indwelt man, that's who he was. That's the promised one. That's the Christ. That's what one must believe. And he's hammering it over and over and over. In verses seven and eight, John continues with more evidence to validate his point how. He says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood and, all, and the three are in agreement. All right. Let's look at John chapter one. We're back in the gospel of John. We'll start in verses 33 and go through 34. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is the son of God. Because Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, the spirit is a testimony to Jesus being the son of God and being God the Christ it was a way of fulfillment what they already knew should be expected when they saw the Christ come in Matthew chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 Matthew 3:16 and 17 as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is God speaking, declaring this is my son. So after the water baptism, when the spirit comes upon Jesus God testifies that Jesus is his son. In this the water testifies to Jesus being the one who came or the Christ. Now let's go to Luke. You guys are going to have bent pages on those bibles. In Luke chapter 9 starting in verse 28, we'll do 28 through 35, so a little bit longer reading. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, master, it is good for us to be here now. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So notice back in verse 31, it says they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. This is concerning the crucifixion. Immediately after the crucifixion is being discussed, God tells, testifies to Jesus being his son. And notice that God says, whom I have chosen. Jesus was chosen for this event that had not yet taken place. In John chapter 12, we'll do three verses, 27 through 29. So John 12, starting in 27. Now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. God speaks to Jesus immediately before the crucifixion and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. What is the it referring to? Well, here it says, I came to this hour. What is this hour referring to? The crucifixion that he's getting ready to endure. So God testifies he has glorified Jesus to come to this hour, put his spirit in Jesus at the water baptism and is going to glorify Jesus again when the crucifixion is done with his spirit in Jesus. Now we circle back to 1 John chapter five, verse nine. For those of you who are still with me. (laughs) Men can say and do believe something because they have heard it from another man. John makes what comparison of this? He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater so God is to, believe, to be believed more than the testimony of man. And how does John conclude? He says, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. God himself testified concerning Jesus. What did God testify? Well, back in Matthew 3, 17, he said, this is my son. In Luke 3, I mean, 935, he said, this is my son. In John 12, that 27 through 29 that we read, his name has been glorified and will be glorified in Jesus. So in 1 John 5, verse 10, what is true for the one who believes this testimony of God about his son So the one who believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. All right, so the one who believes Jesus is the son of God believes Jesus is the Christ. The one who believes Jesus is the Christ has what or who inside of him? The Holy Spirit. The testimony of being a son of God is the Holy Spirit, both for Jesus and for men. What is the opposite of this truth? He says, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So one who does not believe in the testimony of God concerning his son does not have the testimony in himself. So he does not have the Holy Spirit. In him, he is not a believer. Verse 11, John gives insight of this testimony, how? He says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So God's testimony is that he has given believers eternal life. And how is this eternal life given? This life is in his son. God wrote the rules. He testified and he wrote the rules because he's God. We should just be done with that. Verse 12, (laughs) the simple truth is what? What is revealed in verse 12? He who has the son has the life and he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. We cannot think of eternal life apart from the son. It is impossible to have one without the other. So that was the conclusion of those verses. Now we're gonna do 1 John chapter five. We're gonna scooch along with verses 13 through 15. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Okay, so verse 13, who does John clarify that he is talking to? These things I've written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God. What do we call those who believe in the name of the Son of God? Believers, what does John say to these believers? So that you may know you have eternal life. So assurance of salvation for believers is important, especially if there are false teachers putting that security into question. And it is rampant today in all forms of religion who make people feel that there are things they have to do to hold on to their salvation. It was from the very beginning, something John was fighting against and something we need to know is something we fight against. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Nothing is going to take it away. It's a gift from God. Verse 14, what else does John say to the believers? He says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So who is the him? You have to go back to verse 11 Where he said, God has given us. So it's in reference to the God who has given us that he is referring to. How do we ask for things from God? What do we say? We pray. We do, we do prayer when we ask for things from God. So when a believer prays for anything according to God's will, what is the promise? He hears us. Verse 15. How does John continue? And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So when a believer has asked for something that is in God's will, then God hears the believer. God not only hears, but the believer will have the request answered. This does not mean that the believer will see the request answered, as it may happen outside of the knowledge of the believer. God will always grant his will to be accomplished. Notice the believer is still to seek to know God's will. The believer is also to still seek the request from God, meaning the believer is still to pray to God for the request. You can see how that can be mistaught. If God already knows, then how come I have to ask him? Well, maybe he wants to communicate with you so the two of you can figure out what God's will is. Maybe that's God's whole point, is for you to have a change of attitude, for you to understand what God's will is. Those are the prayers that will be answered. Sometimes they will be answered so that you see them. I think he does that for us to encourage us as if we never saw anything, that would be discouraging and a good father wouldn't do that to his children. But that doesn't mean that you always see everything. I know there were things that my mother prayed for that I saw happen long after she was gone. So she didn't get to see the fulfillment of it. She still prayed for it. She was still part of understanding God's will in creation and following up with prayer time. But she didn't see the fulfillment. So there might be plenty of things you pray for. You don't get to happen to see them be fulfilled. It doesn't take that away from you submitting those prayer requests and coming before the Father. He's still trying to communicate with you about what his will is. That's the power of prayer. It is never about changing God. It is always about changing us. 1 John chapter 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. I should have saved a second week just for this part. <laughs> All right, let's tackle it. Verse 16. John continues discussing prayer for the believer, and he addresses what? He says, anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death okay so when a believer sees what sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death what kind of sin does not lead to death any sin committed by a believer. All sin is forgiven for a believer. So this assumes the death is in regards to eternal death, not physical death. And didn't we already discuss that back with Jesus having the purified spirit? He's talking about internally When a believer sees a brother, a fellow believer committing sin, we are to ask for what? That God will, for him, give life to those who commit the sin not leading to death. So what does it mean for him to give life? To give life can be an an eternal understanding. However... The believer already has eternal life. So it would make more sense that the prayer for the believer is to remove the sin that is taking or talking about life in some manner in the temporal sense. We might take sin away so the believer can live a more abundant life, a more abiding life, a more virtuous life. Right? So that's the sin that doesn't lead to death spiritually, but it can affect a believer's walking temporal life. If you were to see somebody, he says, as a believer walking in sin, you would then pray that that sin would be something that would be taken out of their life. But it doesn't have to do with their eternal life. You're not on your knees. Begging that they'll have eternal security. That's already been granted. That would not be your prayer. <clears throat> what is the contrast John puts forth next? There is a sin leading to death. What is the sin? All right, John has been discussing that can lead to death. He said, not believing the testimony of God concerning his son. Unbelief is that sin. Ephesians gives us some more detail in Ephesians 2, uh, verses one through five. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So we were all dead in this sin before God made us alive with Christ by grace through faith and remember we tie faith all the way back up into verse 4 of 1 John chapter 5 so it's the grace given and it's the faith in which we can have an understanding of who Jesus is and can know that he is the Christ in 1 John 5:17 what does John say a believer should not do in regards to the sin of unbelief He says, I do not say that he should make request for this. A believer cannot ask God to just forgive the sin of unbelief. What should all believers pray for as a request from God concerning all unbelievers? That they would believe. That's the difference. So believers can pray, God will grant the grace and the mercy of faith to believe, but no one, can, no one can be forgiven for the sin of unbelief. Think about that, that's, that's what he's been saying as he brings us along here. The sin of unbelief is not forgiven. The, the way somebody moves from an unbelief to a belief is by the gift of God alone. So that's what's hard for people. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying about this gospel, but I had an aunt, you know, and she blah, blah, blah. All right, well, we're not talking about your aunt because we can't do anything about your aunt. She's gone and I don't know what her situation was. Let's just talk about you. Let's have that conversation. But how many times have you tried to have conversations and people want to go off and want to talk about other people and it's usually people who are already gone who can't change their situation that puts a burden on their heart. They don't want to hear about that. Bring them back to them because the only way to change that into a believing heart is for God to give them the faith, period. Hard stuff, I know. Verse 17, how does John continue? All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. So what sin does not lead to eternal death? The sin of a believer. The sin of a believer does not lead you to eternal death. When a believer commits sin, it does not lead to eternal death, but it is still sin. Apparently there was some horrible teaching going on and John has had to unpack all this. Maybe it was because there were people who had passed on and people were coming and saying, well, we can just pray for that. God's gonna grant anything that we ask him for. We're just gonna pray that that somehow they became believers after they died. That's what we're gonna I don't know what it was, but it sure sounds like there was some real mixed up doctrine going on and John is trying to set it straight. So back to 1 John chapter 5, 18 through 21. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So, verse 18, John reaffirms what first? No one that is born of God sins. Who is one who is born of God? Where does a believer not sin? Why does a believer not sin? Because he who was born of God keeps him. Who is the he? He who was born of God. Who was the one born of God? Jesus. Jesus. John already gave the testimony that this was the truth by the spirit and water and the blood. What is true for the believer? And the evil one does not touch him. Who's the evil one? Satan. You get bonus points for that one. In what way is a believer assured the evil one cannot touch him? He can't take your eternal life away from you. Yay, happy, that's right. Verse 19, what do believers know to be true? We know that we are of God, and what is the contrast? That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So who is the whole world then in this comparison? The unbelievers. And what is true for the unbelievers? They lie in the power of the evil one. We do not, they do. This is why we share the gospel. We want to make our party bigger. Verse 20, that's right. When we are of God and not the evil one, what do we know? We know that the son of God has come. What is the whole point? The Christ has come what has he given us he is giving us understanding so that we may know him who is true because the christ has come we now can understand who god is through the holy spirit we see confirmation of this in second corinthians i'm sorry first corinthians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We can know God because he gave us his spirit to know him in first John five twenty, why can we understand who God is and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ we are in Jesus now what is revealed to us who have Jesus in us This is the true God and eternal life. This relationship of knowing the true God is happening now and will continue with our eternal life. Verse 21, what is John's final warning? He says, the little children guard yourselves. So who is John speaking to when he calls them little children, believers? And what are the believers to do guard themselves from idols. The term idols means false gods. So any movement to worshiping another god without a complete understanding of the true god revealed through the spirit because of Jesus is idolatry. There is knowing and worshiping the one true god and then there is everything else John writes this letter to refute the lies of the false teachers in doing this John accomplished many things for the encouragement of the believers John has written this letter to encourage believers that they all all they need is in Jesus they don't need more he's everything John reiterates who Jesus is and what he is to the believer. He's the Christ. He's the propitiation for sin. And this is testified to by men and the Holy Spirit and God the Father. We are sons of God. We have forgiveness of sin. We have eternal life. And we can live victoriously over sin and can love other believers. That wraps up 1st John chapter 5 and 1st John overall.